we are going to be in uh, Psalm 34 this morning. As we've already heard uh, from Pastor Ben, we're going to be in Psalm 34, and we're going to be in the entire psalm. Now, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, because that's what David wrote in it originally, as we all know. No, it's because that's just the Bible that I had, and I don't have a CSV, and so I'm going to be in the ESV. David wrote it in Hebrew, let the record show especially if Jesse listens to this afterwards. Um, All right, so let's read from Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let me pray. Lord, we have just heard from you. Holy Spirit, you moved David to write those words so that... On June 25th, Emmanuel Church of Fijera could hear them. That Christians throughout the centuries could hear what you have to say and taste and see that you are good. Lord, I pray that as we look at them this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would incline our hearts to your statutes. And that in doing so, you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings are worshipers by nature. We are worshipers by nature. It's true whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are from a certain background or a different background. You are fundamentally, by nature, a worshiper. It doesn't matter what religion you worship. It doesn't matter whether you have a religion or not. You may worship at the altar of science and philosophy. 
You are a worshiper. We can't help it, right? We, we look, especially in the UAE, we have people from so many different backgrounds here. In this room, I love looking out and seeing different peoples. All of you are from different backgrounds. You are all worshipers by nature. We worship our money. We worship our reputations. What people think about us, that is our highest goal. We worship our jobs. We worship our comfort. We are all worshipers. So the the question is not whether or not you will worship. The question is, will you worship in the right way? Will you worship the right God? Are you the right kind of worshiper? Psalm 34 teaches us what it looks like to be the right kind of worshiper. What it looks like to worship the right God in the right way. The psalm, as we've already seen, was written by David. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And the Holy Spirit speaking through David helps us to see what sort of worship God values, what sort of worship God cares about, what sort of worship God wants from us. And here's what we're going to see this morning. True worship delights in self, in who God is, and what God has done. Psalm 34, it holds out a picture of true worship. And what we see is that true worship delights itself in who God is and what God has done. And that delight is going to show itself in a whole host of different ways. What we're going to see, that worship is not about what you're doing with your body. So all around the UAE, we have people who think that what matters most in worship is what we do with our body. Do we bow at the right time? Do we turn our head in the right way? Do we face the right direction? Worship is not about what we do with our body chiefly. Though it includes what we do with our body. Worship is chiefly about what we do in our hearts. Do we feast upon God? Do we delight ourselves in God? Do we taste and see that the Lord is good? Worship is delighting in God. And to see this, we're going to look at three different aspects of worship. First, we're going to look at the posture of worship. Then we're going to look at the commands for worship. And then we're going to look at the motivation or the reasons for worship. Posture for worship, commands for worship, motivation for worship. So let's look first at the posture for worship. How should we worship God? What should our posture and our approach be? This is where David starts the psalm. Look at at verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. The first thing that David wants us to see about worship from Psalm 34 is that it is a continual act. It is something that happens all the time. It's not something you turn on and turn off. It's not something you schedule on your calendar. You're like, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, worship. No, worship is Continual. We bless the Lord at all times. We praise the Lord continually with our mouths. Our worship is never ending. Many of us think that worship, or we hear the word worship, and we think about singing. Now, worship is not merely singing. It includes singing. We do worship God as we sing. But worship is not the same thing as singing. Worship is something that we do with all of our lives. And if you look at the way the New Testament and the Old Testament use the word worship, it shows up. 
Jesus taught us in Luke 2 that we worship individually as we fast and as we pray. In Romans 12, Paul calls us to give our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship. So when you use your body in the right way as a sacrifice to the Lord, saying no to sin and yes to righteousness, what are you doing there? Worshiping. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything that we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, we're supposed to do everything as worship to the glory of God. You will not stop worshiping, Lord willing, when you leave this room and go to lunch and eat. Your eating, done in the right way, will be an act of worship because worship is continual. And this posture of continual worship is made all the more impactful when we realize what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm. Pastor Ben mentioned it when we read in 1 Peter. When David wrote this psalm, as we see in the title, it was when he was fleeing from Abimelech. So in the original Hebrew, the title is there. So the title, so if, if and I don't know what the CSB says, the ESV has taste and see that the Lord is good as the heading. But then it says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That wasn't the English Bible translators putting that in. David wanted us to know that this is the context that the psalm was written. And so if we go back and we look and say, hey, wait, what was going on in David's life when he was driven out? Well, we can turn and we can turn to 1 Samuel 21. Verse 10, and we can see, oh, what's happening in David's life? Here's what we see. David rose and fled that day from Saul, the current king of Israel at the time. And he went to Achish. Another word for Achish is Abimelech, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of Israel? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before him and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of their gates. He scratched with his fingernails at the doors and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? That's what's happening when David flees. David then departed from there, chapter 22, verse 1, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam where he wrote this psalm. Before this, in 1 Samuel 21, David had been anointed as the king of Israel, right? Out of all of his brothers, God chose him. Before this, David had killed Goliath, the giant. Before this, David had been brought into Saul's royal household. He married Saul's daughter. He was in the royal household. Before this, David was flying high. He was a success story. Everything in his life was going well. And then King Saul, threatened by David's success, seeks to kill him. 
And then the servants of Achish, threatened by David's military might, seek to kill him. And David acts like a madman, like a crazy person. This is, this is the king, the future king of Israel, running around in Gath, drooling all over the place, scratching at doors like a madman. David is at his lowest point, at least up until this point. Absalom was probably lower than this. But he was at his lowest point when he wrote the words of these psalms. Even from this point of desperation, David says, what am I doing right now? I am blessing the Lord continually. His praise is on my mouth. Even when his life is threatened, his posture is of continual worship. We'll see why David was able to do that in a bit. The question I have now for you is, is this how you think about your life of worship? Do you view worship as something that you do one day a week for a couple hours and then you live for yourself or live for the world? Or do you worship as you go about your jobs? Do you worship as you love your spouse and raise your kids? Do you worship as you wait for a spouse and fight for contentment and singleness? Or do you live for your own glory six days out of the week and save the Lord's worship for Sunday? Our worship on this side of Jesus' return, it won't be perfect. We all know that. The answer to all those questions of do you is sometimes. (laughs) We all confess. It's why we have prayers of confession in our service. Because we know that we have failed in our worship. But we strive to worship God continually. To have our whole life be a life of worship. That's the first posture of worship. The second is that worship is an expression of humility. So David says that in verse 2. He says that he boasts in the Lord and that the humble hear it and are glad. True worship humbly boasts in the Lord. How do those things go together? Right? That, that seems like a contradiction. Right? In fact, we actually kind of have a term, at least in, in my culture, we call it a humble brag. Right? Where you say something kind of low so that people will think highly of you. Right? Is that what David's talking about? No. David's not boasting in himself. David is humbly boasting in the Lord. What matters for humility is what is the object of your boast. It's not whether you boast or not. It's not whether you brag. It's not whether you praise. It's what's your object. Are you puffing yourself up? Or are you giving someone else praise and glory? Christians are those who recognize the greatness of the Lord. And they boast in him alone. They aren't like the Pharisees who stand making long prayers in the streets. So that why? So that they will be praised by others. They stand in the public places and they have words that sound right and sound true. But their reason is because they want the glory themselves. And we all know people like this, right? We've heard people give their testimonies, right? We've seen some testimonies on YouTube or when we've listened to athletes after the game and they give their testimony or some of us have come from church backgrounds and people come up and they'll testify to what God has done. And you're sitting here and you're listening and you're thinking, this testimony sure has a lot of you in it and it doesn't have a whole lot of God in it. 
you're, you're actually using this testimony slot as a chance to talk about your greatness and your glory and what you've overcome in your life and the hardships that you've faced and yet you've trusted and were successful rather than boasting in the Lord. That's not what worship is. True worship is continual and it is also humble. Psalm 34, though, doesn't merely describe the posture of worship. It also gives us commands for worship. And this is our second point. It calls us to worship. And there are three main imperatives in this psalm. I know some of you guys are wrapping up school and you're like, I'm tired of thinking of grammar. But imperatives are helpful because they tell us what God is calling us to do. The three main imperatives, and we're going to look at them one at a time. The first we see in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Command, magnify. Magnify doesn't mean make something small look bigger. Some of you guys have glasses and glasses, certain type of glasses, probably not the ones that you're wearing, but certain type of glasses, you put it on so that you can see small things. You have a microscope. That makes these small things look bigger. That's not what magnify is. Magnify is not like a microscope. It's like a telescope. That sun is massive. That star is massive. That planet is massive. And you see it as a teeny tiny little dot. And then you stand before the telescope. And boom. You see it a little bit of what it's like. That's the sort of magnification we have of God. We are not called to make a small God look bigger. We are called to make a massive God look as glorious as he truly is. We magnify the Lord together. Did you see that? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This is called communal worship. Christians are called to worship God together. And while it's true that we worship God in every area of our private lives, right? We worship when we pray in secret, right? When we go into our prayer closet, that's worship. We don't restrict worship to our individual lives. Christians are called to be people of community. That's why God gave us the church, so that we can come together and we can worship God together with one voice. Why does God call us to do this? Is this just an arbitrary rule like you just have to do it don't ask why just do it no the reason why christians are called to worship together is like the difference between eating a meal by yourself or eating a meal with other people when you eat a meal by yourself it does not change the properties of the food right it's the same food whether you eat it by yourself or whether you eat it with other people The food doesn't change. It has the same nutrients. Your body will get the same help, whether you're eating alone or with other people. In fact, you can even make a case that eating by yourself is more efficient than eating with other people. You don't have other people to distract you. You can go hard after that food by yourself. You can scarf it down in just a few seconds in the drive-thru, get on your way, and be efficient. So... Why would we eat by our, well, we eat with other people when nothing changes about the food, whether we eat by ourselves, and it may even be less efficient to eat with other people? And the answer is because the food doesn't change, but the experience 
of the eating changes. We all know that it is far more enjoyable to eat with other people. We have conversation while we eat, right? We delight in the food together, right? Some of you have known this. You sit down to eat with other people. If you're by yourself, you take a bite. What are you going to do? Take another bite. If you're sitting with other people, you take a bite. What are you going to do? Mmm. Mmm. That shawarma. Oh, man. Biryani. Man. Ponsig, maybe. In the new heavens, the Lord will make my taste buds appreciate it. But right now, I just have not the right sanctification. But you taste the food, and with your other people, you delight in it together. You compliment the food. Oh, this is so good. You spend time lingering over the meal. You enjoy the fellowship that you have around the food. The food has not changed, but the experience of eating has. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change when we come to worship him. But when we come to worship him together, the experience changes. We delight in him as others are delighting in him. We are helped in our singing. Some of you have been in this room, right, where it's like just three people and you're supposed to sing. And you're like singing really quietly under your breath. But when you're a room full of people, you sing stronger. You sing with more confidence. Some of you struggle to pray by yourself. Right? You have your morning time reading the word and you go to prayer and you don't know exactly what to pray. But then when you pray with other people and you hear someone else pray, you think, amen. That helps me know how to pray. Corporate worship becomes fuller, deeper, more robust as the different members of the body come together and magnify the Lord together. And this leads to the second command that Psalm 34 calls us to. Look at verse 8. If you have verse 8. Most famous verse probably in the psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We're called not only to worship God, but to delight in worshiping God. Worship is delight in God. It is tasting for yourself and seeing that the Lord is good. Why does David use the image of tasting here? Ever wondered this? Like, why taste? God is not food. God does not have a body that we can taste. Why are we commanded to taste and see that the Lord is good then? I think the reason is because of the immensely personal nature of tasting. Tasting is one of the most personal things that you can do. You cannot taste for someone else. You can only taste for yourself. You cannot taste from afar. You can walk by McDonald's and you can smell it, but you can't taste it. You you can't do anything in order to get the experience of tasting except eating and tasting and feasting for yourself. The only way you can taste is if you put it in your mouth. And feast upon him. In worship, we are commanded to taste the goodness of the Lord for ourselves. That means that we have to experience the goodness of the Lord ourselves. Other people can help us, they can set the table for us, 
They can lay it out. They can teach us the ingredients of the meal. They can tell us that God is holy, that God is righteous, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. They can set the meal for us. They can tell us what it's made of, but they can't taste it for you. You have to do that yourself. By the Spirit, you have to feast upon the Lord. And then you see, he's good. You can't study your way to taste. You have to eat. You have to close your mouth in order for you to experience it. Jonathan Edwards, writing in the early 1700s, he wrote about the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting that honey is sweet. Some of us have seen those videos on YouTube or we've seen it with our own kids. Have you ever seen a kid try ice cream for the first time like a little baby? Right? And all of their life, all they've known is mushy peas and mushy carrots and bland starches. And then all of a sudden you put a little bit of ice cream in their mouth or a little bit of honey in their mouth. The kids taste it, open up, expecting, oh yeah, it's going to be peas again. And they clomp down on it and then... Their eyes are there. Their hands go up. They're trying to pull with every part of them. I want more of this sweetness. Now, you could have talked to that child and you'd say, Son, I'm going to tell you about honey here for a moment. It's sweet. It's going to taste very good. You're going to like it a lot. Right? It comes from bees. Bees. And it's going to make you light up. And what's the child going to do? It's going to be like, Yeah, I've heard that before with mashed potatoes. All right, you try to sell me on those too. No, the child is going to not know what you're talking about until they taste it. And then they light up. That's the sort of knowledge of God Christians are called to have. That's the sort of knowledge of God we're going after in worship. We are not studying the sweetness of God. Everything we're trying to do here is to see for ourselves, yes, he's good. And I want more. Like the toddler holding on to the spoon We want to hold on to God and see that he is God. You cannot worship God from a safe distance. You cannot worship him by merely observing him. You can only worship him by tasting his goodness for yourself. The delight is the worship. So we've seen the first two commands of worship. We worship together and we taste God's goodness. The final command is seen in verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. In worship, we are called to fear God. But what is the fear of the Lord? What does that mean? Well, if we keep reading, David tells us in verse 11. He says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So what follows is the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say, see good? Keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The fear of the Lord, in short, is living with integrity and truthfulness before God. It is living as if God is real, that he sees all, he knows all, he knows you inside out, and you live before him. You keep your tongue from evil, you keep your lips from speaking deceit. The fear of the Lord means actively turning away from evil and pursuing peace, peace with God and peace with man. 
Fearing the Lord means living for his glory with every area of our lives. If worship is, worshiping together is the communal side of worship, and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is the experiential side of worship, fearing the Lord is the ethical side of worship. It's how worship shows itself in our actions and in our lives. How do you know if you are worshiping? Are you living in the way that God calls you to? We worship when we trust the Lord in every situation. So far we've looked at the postures of worship. We've looked at the commands for worship. Most of the psalm, though, is motivation. It's David giving us reason after reason after reason that we would worship God. He is stacking up a tower of reasons so that you have a robust building that can support you. So that when you go hard after God in worship, when you try to taste and see that the Lord is good, you have a strong foundation underneath you. David gives us reasons for worshiping the Lord. We see in verse 4 that we worship the Lord because he hears us when we cry. So he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Have you ever wondered just how amazing it is that we are singing to ceilings and concrete walls and tile and God hears us? And he hears all the other Christians that are singing to him today. And he hears all the Christians who are meeting in secret for fear that they sing too loud so other people might hear them. And he hears you when you're isolated by yourself and you're lonely. And you're desperate for God to meet you. And you cry. God is never deaf to your cries. He hears you. We take that for granted, but that is amazing. Verse 6 says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. David scratching on the gates of Gath. Drool running down his face. Lord, help me. God heard him. And he saved him out of all of his troubles. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers him out of all their troubles. God hears us when we cry. And we worship the Lord because he sees us in our need. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. He sees you. Some of you go throughout life feeling like no one sees you. People pass by. They don't even notice you. Your boss at work doesn't seem to notice you. Your spouse doesn't seem to notice you. Your friends don't seem to notice you. God sees you. We worship the Lord because he saves us. Verse 6 again. This poor man cried, the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. The Lord is near, verse 18, the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David knew that. David knew that his life was not going to be comfortable. He'd experienced afflictions. They were many. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
God saves us. We worship the Lord because he provides for us. Verse 5, those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces are never ashamed. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We worship the Lord because he redeems us. He sets us free. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. Verse 22, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. All of these actions, reason after reason after reason after reason, to motivate you to come and taste for yourself. In fact, it's actually in the affliction, in the need for saving, in the need for provision, in the dependence that we taste the goodness of God. Some of us think we'll only taste God's goodness when we're through the trouble. Right? So we're in the midst of the pain and we're like, I will taste that God is good, but right now I'm going to grumble because it's really hard. We only look at the tasting as the very end. David wants you to see in the pain, God's good. Taste and see. And this becomes all the more clear to us when we realize that as Christians, we see God's goodness in a way that David didn't. We see God's goodness in a way that is clearer than David saw it. David was writing prior to the coming of Jesus. David's situation was desperate. But it was not as desperate as our situation, apart from Christ. Satan is far worse of an enemy than Saul. Our sin can do far more to us than Achish, the king of Gath. We were far more broken than madmen running around the streets. We were rebels and enemies of God, standing under God's just condemnation, ready to be sent to hell. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One would scarcely die for a good man. Perhaps for a righteous man, someone would dare to die. But while you were at your worst, Jesus died for us. Do you taste the goodness of the Lord? Your stomach was empty. Your taste buds were seared by sin. Like when you eat something spicy and you can't taste anything else, that was you. And then God came in and you clamped your mouth upon him and boom you tasted and saw that he's better than sin he is better than the sin that leads to death he sent forth his own son to taste death for you so that you could taste the Lord's goodness for yourself he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's goodness to us is clearest, not in the giving of his temporary gifts, of rescuing from pain and suffering, but in the giving of the eternal gift of his son and the fellowship that we have with him. If you're here this morning and you haven't tasted the goodness of the Lord for yourself, you can do that right now. As you listen to God's word and you see him with faith and what God has done in Jesus, dying in your place so that you don't have to. So that you can put aside all of your works and come to him. You can 
taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus' body is the bread. His blood is the wine. As we feast upon him and experience the goodness of God ourselves. Emmanuel Fujera, God is good. Whether you taste it or not. Today, may you taste it for yourself and see as you delight in God and worship him, that the Lord is good. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for being good. All of your good deeds flow from who you are. You are good and you do good. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us as we sing and continue to worship you Help us to see for ourselves that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.